This is Local Switchboard NYC, a women's audio collective. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé. We're here to bring you news on a human scale. News that reminds us that big stories often start small. News that keeps us connected. I usually take like the J train or the A, the C, and in the last like three months, they're giving like a lot of problems because of working and stuff. On this show, we take the subway. Not. This is a district that is 400 years old. And I would venture to say that as we walk, you will discover that each one of those centuries is still evident today as we walk. But we do do a lot of walking. That's all coming up on Local Switchboard NYC. Spring has finally sprung, and people seem eager to get outdoors. But the return of normal business and social life has also meant a return to the subway. Seema Saitikov, an audio journalism student at Hunter College, asks why. It's just like I'm an Uber person. I'm oh, okay. No, it's okay. no problem. I understand why. Yes. No, I'm really sorry. I have to catch a train right now. The next one's in 30 minutes. Sorry, I'm, I have a plane. Oh, okay. I'm way back. Okay, okay. No problem. Thank you. Being rejected in New York City should never be taken to heart because everyone is always running somewhere and trying to catch the train or plane. But as a native New Yorker, we can all agree that with the train delays, New York City will never stop running. I'm Armando Guzman and I live in the Bronx. Hi, my name is Lana Promisano and I live here in Brooklyn, New York City. My name is Simone Eichelsdorfer and I live in the South Bronx. Well, there was one time there was this homeless guy and I think he was a little bit crazy and he was just screaming, I'm going to kill everyone in the train and I'm not, the trains were just delayed, that's why I was stuck. It was just my maintenance issues, but he just started getting mad and saying he was going to kill everyone, but he didn't do anything. I usually take like the J train or the A, the C, and in the last like three months they're giving like a lot of problems because of working and stuff. So it became like a problem to move around the city, also in the, especially in the night. Well, I have pretty bad experiences with train delays. Usually it will be when I have to go to school or to work and it will delay like 30 minutes and I would just be sitting there and then there will be a lot of people coming in. Was there ever an experience where you were late to school or to work because the trains had some kind of delays? Uh, yeah, a couple of times. Like, Can you tell me about it? Well, it happens almost every day. So, I mean, I, I try to leave early like 20 minutes before, so I expect those. Well, I remember I was getting on my stop and then the train just stopped out of nowhere. And it was because somebody was holding up the train just for no apparent reason. He was just holding up the train, like sitting right in between the doors. And you had everybody come out the train station yelling at this guy. He even got tased and he still wasn't moving. So we are just standing there like I had to record to like show my boss like I'm not lying, please. I'm just you know, I'm stuck here. And we was there for like almost an hour and a half, just like sitting there waiting for this guy to move. So it took like so long just for that guy to move. And we had to get police to come and it was just too much. People falling in the, in the tracks or other accident, like maybe a subway one day, I don't know how, but it got stuck. So we needed to evacuate and walk like 
a lot and wait for like 30 minutes for the next train because everything was uh, everything stopped. When people have places to go, we can't be like delayed with like somebody holding up the train. So we should just have on on person people that is there to help them like de-escalate the situation. Fund the MTA a bit more, but not by us paying more Metro cards because then this is going to lead to more hopping over the train. Yep, sounds just like typical New York. I mean, have you really had a true New York City experience if you don't have a crazy subway story? I don't think so. That was Seema Sidikov reporting underground for Local Switchboard NYC. Above ground, it's a different story. Every year since 2009, the Municipal Arts Society of New York has organized Jane's Walk, a series of tours on the hoof honoring the urban activist Jane Jacobs. This year, local switchboard Sarah Montague joined several. I shall mainly be writing about common, ordinary things. For instance, what kinds of city streets are safe and what kinds are not? Why some city parks are marvelous and others are vice traps and death traps? Why some slums stay slums and other slums regenerate themselves even against financial and official opposition? What, if anything, is a city neighborhood, and what jobs, if any, neighborhoods in great cities do? In short, I shall be writing about how cities work in real life. That is the urban activist and author Jane Jacobs, writing in The Death and Life of Great American Cities, published in 1961. Jacobs was a Joan of Arc figure, raising her shield against the type of urban renewal that destroyed neighborhoods and dismissed their residents. She was a David against the Goliath of city administrators like Robert Moses, who imagined a city cleansed of untidiness with racist and classist implications and buried under expressways and concrete. Dismissed by Moses and his allies as an untrained housewife, she nevertheless triumphed. Because of her, Greenwich Village is a well-preserved historic district and adjacent neighborhoods such as Soho were allowed to develop at their own pace. Jacob saw neighborhoods as the vital ganglia connecting urban life, so it is fitting that since 2009 there has been a living, renewable tribute to her, Jane's Walk. So you love the meatpacking district? Yes. You've been yeah. here before and you want yeah. to know more. The project originated in Toronto, where Jacobs moved in 1968, and is now in many cities around the world, but it feels especially vital in New York, where it is managed by the Municipal Arts Society. It was a way to celebrate Jane Jacobs as an urban activist and a really important part of the modern day urbanist movement. And she as a person really prioritized being engaged with community members and being in person and on the street as a way to engage in conversation and community. So Jane's Walk upholds that idea by encouraging people to get out in their community and either explore their local neighborhood or use it as an opportunity to explore other parts of their city that they haven't explored before. That's Genevieve Wagner, public programs assistant at the Society. Jacobs was a populist and would certainly have approved of the project's inclusive nature. All the walks are proposed, created, and presented by volunteers. So in... February, we launch a submission form. And as a volunteer-led festival, we accept basically all of the walks that get submitted. And then 
we release a roster of all of the walks, usually in April, and people can begin to sign up for walks this way. And between the submission form uh, launch date and the deadline, we give people about a month and a half usually to submit their walk. Unaccustomed to public speaking, never walked anything but your dog, no fear, the society's got you covered. We have various trainings for walk leaders to learn more about how to lead a virtual or an in-person walk. And these trainings are also a way for people to share ideas that they have for their walk and also how to access resources for doing research on their walk topic or using virtual tools to lead a virtual walk. Jane's walk always occurs during the weekend closest to Jacob's birthday, May 4th. This year, between May 6th and May 8th, the Society offered 175 walks. Both the amateur nature of the event and its breadth echo Jacob's beliefs about how to get under the skin of a city. Here's another passage from The Death and Life of Great American Cities. The way to get at what goes on in the seemingly mysterious and perverse behavior of cities is, I think, to look closely and with as little previous expectation as possible at the most ordinary scenes and events and attempt to see what they mean and whether any threads of principle emerge among them. And who better to examine these threads, says Wagner, than the passionate residents? Because... People in their neighborhood, especially if you're a longtime New Yorker, you're the one who knows the most about your neighborhood and the history and uh, can speak to that experience of living in a certain place. And that's really empowering. Wagner also notes that the project has spread beyond its Greenwich Village nucleus. The cool thing about Jane's Walk, especially in recent years, is diversifying our walks across not just Manhattan, but all of the boroughs in New York. This year's options included Ghosts of the Polo Ground Shuttle, Urban Forest Care in Hell's Kitchen, Spanish Harlem's Murals and Mosaics, and Mansions and Monuments of Riverside Drive. One also involved waffles in Queens. If I could find Queens, I would have signed up for that one in a heartbeat. The lineup also reflected the influence of the pandemic. There were no in-person tours in 2020 or 2021. Instead, the Municipal Arts Society, in cooperation with the Urban Archive, developed a series of virtual events. These proved so successful that this year's walk, with a still uncertain state of things in mind, was a hybrid. Participants had the option of in-person, virtual, or self-guided walks. The proof is in the pudding. I've been a New York City resident for 30 years, and for most of that time in the West Village. I decided to find out what Jane's Walk could tell me about my own and adjacent neighborhoods. I began with my old stamping ground, the Meatpacking District, which comprises the area around Gansevoort Street and Little West 12th Street. I got my start in radio here, in the second floor of a warehouse. Like one of those old Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney films where the aspiring thespians mount their show in someone's barn, our fledgling audio troupe was loaned the second floor of a fruit and vegetable import business owned by someone's mom. When we were all maverick independent producers, it is now a very grand dress shop called Two Minds, surrounded by other high-end retail establishments, and it's hard to remember the days when we could gaze out on it and look at the kinds of trucks that carted hogs off to market. So in my own mind, I am already living in a palimpsest. 
Anyone today gazing at the district's row of high-end retailers, Hermes, Theory, Rag and Bone among them, would be astonished to know that meatpacking is not a picturesque fabrication, but literal. Jacqueline Ottman is here to set you straight. I'm Jackie Ottman, Jackie O, uh, for short. And why am I doing this tour today? Everybody has their own reasons why, as private citizens, we signed up to share our stories and our knowledge. Mine is because my family operated a meat business in this district. It was called Ottman and Company. Now, when the meatpacking district became hot, I would ask my friends, what went on in the meatpacking district? Do, do you know? And they'd say, butchers, slaughterhouses. They really didn't really have a good understanding of it. And nobody knew what the term meat purveyor was. And that's the segment of the meat business that my family operated in. And without the meat purveyors, you would not have the old homestead and Peter Luger and all the great steakhouses and restaurants in New York City. The entire time I was here, my family was here, we never saw a cow, a steer, walking down the street. <laughs> there were no steer here. Okay. Ottman's tour was a nice blend of personal narrative and the much older history of an area first settled over 400 years ago by the Lenape. This is a district that is 400 years old. And I would venture to say that as we walk, you will discover that each one of those centuries is still evident today as we walk. And she encouraged her walkers to observe for themselves. What do you notice that's different about this intersection than many others you're aware of? It's not the grid, exactly. It is not a grid. I think that's one of the reasons why people like the meatpacking district. You feel like you're out of the hubbub of the city. What else do you notice? Look up, look down, look around. These are Belgian bricks, exactly. These are not cobblestones. I wasn't able to stay for Altman's full tour, but this is a sampling of the intimate story from the ground up that she had to offer. What else do you notice? Belgian bricks? The height of the buildings. This one is really the Grand Dame. It's six stories high. Always was. But it doesn't really go much taller than this. There are no tall buildings around here. That's right. So they're all very low slung. They actually started out as four or five story buildings that were built to house the employees, the workers who worked in various coal yards, lumber yards, stone yards, carpentry shops, other kind of small-scale manufacturing in the 1850s. This was a very noisy intersection, whether it was the horse-drawn delivery carriages or literally 18-wheelers who came in overnight on a 16-hour haul from the Midwest with meat in the latter part of the history of the meatpacking district, and people were walking past and running around with hand carts, the butchers with the white coats, all those bloodstained. There was fat, blood on the streets. I'd wear clogs like I'm wearing today, and you'd literally slip on this stuff. 
Perhaps the ghost of Jacob's arch-nemesis Robert Moses was abroad on Saturday the 7th. The weather was miserable, with persistent icy rain. For my second tour, Tompkins Square Park, a regular riot. New Yorkers are a hardy lot, and a small, determined group gathered around Thomas Eckhart, a retired professor and East Village resident. It has to be said that he was a little dispirited, but gamely talked through the park's older history as a market, and almost continuous history as a place of protest and rebellion. Tompkins is the largest of the village parks, ten acres, but between the noise and the rain it wasn't possible to get much usable tape. Full disclosure, I was eventually defeated by the chill, having somehow dressed for May rather than February, and made a beeline for the popular Ukrainian restaurant Vaselka, where I did my bit for the war by buying a vat of borscht. Sunday's tour was a different story in every sense. It was burdened with a somewhat academic title, Late Twentieth Century Artists and Art Spaces in NoHo, but proved to be anything but dry. We'll see lots of uh, beautiful art in the neighborhood. It's a special area that has been kind of an art area for about maybe 20, 30 years. The walk, led by painter and poet Patrick Marr, took us on a journey through the transformed Lower East Side, and his group represented the eclectic appeal of the walks. Is everyone want to say where they're from really quickly or something, just, just in case someone, someone meets someone from their hometown. <laughs> I'm Is from it? Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon's in the house. Okay, great. New Jersey. New Jersey. Jersey. Tri-state area. I'm from Germany. Oh. Yeah. Bill Coleman. Uh, I'm from Brooklyn, originally from the Lower East Side. Nice. Okay, so you know that area too. Chelsea. Chelsea. So local information here if anyone has questions about those areas. Brooklyn. More local information. Upper West. Brooklyn, from Brooklyn. Oh, amazing. Hi, neighbor. <laughs> I asked one participant, Robert Menneke, what brought her out. New York is such an interesting place, filled with so many interesting things to look at, architecture, art, history, and it's wonderful to be able to dig in depth. And the guides are very knowledgeable. And it really gets your creative juices flowing and you're just peaked. It's great. I also felt like a stranger in a strange land. I hadn't been to the East Village for several years and was not prepared for its sweeping continental elegance, especially the Bowery. Now it is a spacious boulevard thronged with shops, galleries, and restaurants. When I moved to the city in the late 70s, it was still an outdoor flophouse, Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener territory. If Jackie Ottman's meatpacking tour showed me a physical side of an old haunt, Marr filled in the transgressive narrative of the 1980s art scene with an engaging blend of insider gossip and cultural context, where the club scene and the art scene intermingled, which painters lived where and with whom. This building was owned by Warhol back in the day. Some artist friends live in the building. Oh, and then next door to that was um, an artist, Eric Good, who opened up a B-bar with... Madonna and Basquiat in the 80s, and that was kind of like a hot spot. Also, Marion's downstairs. She was a kind of nightlife queen and also lived in the building, and that was also another kind of hot spot of activity. It's a sort of a basement dive. Warhol might even have been amused by the impromptu street performance in his honor, two blonde wig girls debating the meaning of art. This is an affront to noble sentiment and good taste. Do you think, Doctor? Artless and stylish. I think it's spectacular. But is it art? They're just ideas. Doctor, please. 
Orwell has created the greatest critique of capitalism since Marx. Plus, the future sales of his work are virtually limitless. One broken auction record after the next. Really, Doctor, it's indistinguishable from advertising. It's crass and pedestrian, like a joke with no punchline. With all due respect, Doctor, we are the punchline. Marr asked me if his walk is translating well to tape. I say it was meant to sound like a walk, and it did. Do you know about the psychogeography art movement? I do not. You might be interested in that. It's uh, coming out of the idea of flaneuring. Flaneurs were privileged urban strollers in 19th century Paris. That was added with some kind of process of documentation or layering or sometimes putting things into public space and, and turning that into an art form in and of itself. Is that kind of how you see this work? I'm just a volunteer, so uh, as an artist, I, I love walking around. It's sort of part of my practice. I interrupt because I have spotted an old friend. Oh, the acne is still here. Great oysters. It's a beautiful space inside. Mar leads us to still flourishing examples of street art, to small galleries exhibiting the next generation of artists, to glittering condominiums on Bond Street, one commissioned decorative sidewalk art by a formerly stealth graffiti artist. When was that done, the graffiti on the sidewalk? I think it was in the in the 80s okay. when it started. Did he get a permit or did he From just the city, I can't no. believe it. I think he was doing it on his own for a long time. And then, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure that the architects sourced him for that. Uh-huh. Or maybe he was in the building. I, I'll try to find out more. No, it's really interesting. I yeah. That it started out maybe renegade and then got... Oh, yeah, no, I mean, in the 80s, nobody was applying for permits to do their street art. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Well, chiseling on the sidewalk is different from chalk, and... Yeah. You know, and all the loft spaces were illegal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was very wild west, believe me, there were no permits going on. This kind of absorption and transformation of the transgressive into the accepted seems to be the narrative of the area. This building was Cy Twombly studio on the third floor. Uh, followed by Jasper Johns, oh my God. and then Robert Rauschenberg before he moved to the uh, church and the wonderful building in Lafayette, which we'll run by briefly. Marr planned to end his tour at the Levan Bakery on Lafayette and Bleecker. Alas, enough tourists to cast the evacuation from Dunkirk were there ahead of us. But the city is generous. There will always be somewhere to hang your hat and to wonder whose hat was there before you. This building was Basquiat's studio. He, he worked and lived and died here, and so there's a clock here. Oh, I never noticed that. I've walked down the street so many times. And then this wall used to be sort of like an homage to street art, but was recently painted over. What makes Jane's walk so potent is that it reminds us that everywhere in the present we coexist with a vibrant past, one that Jacobs helped preserve. For Local Switchboard NYC, I'm Sarah Montague. Jane's walk inspired us to take a few walks of our own. Local switchboard's Emma Silicons recalls a walk she took after the 2020 elections. As you can hear, the streets of Washington Heights in New York City are absolutely alive and elated by the election news. I was actually walking back from my most recent COVID test when I heard people screaming out of their windows. I looked around trying to work out what was going on and someone yelled, Biden's won, Biden's won. I'm just gonna jump around and see if I can chat to a few people. Hey there, how are you going? 
I am Tracy um, from New York City and I am relieved and thrilled and, and, and hopeful for the first time in a very long time. How did you find out? We've been, <laughs> our TV has not been off for the past 72 hours. So we've been watching and as soon as we made, as they made the call on MSNBC, we just started clapping. I mean, I know the, what's gonna happen over the next few years, it's not gonna be easy and we're very divided, but I feel like this is the beginning of hopefully healing that fracture. So today we celebrate, tomorrow we work. <laughs> So I have had the news on like just constantly playing for 72 hours. I laid down to take a nap and then I heard cheering outside and I woke up and I jumped up and all of this is happening. Now I feel like I can finally go to sleep for the first time in four years, finally. <laughs> Hi there, um, just get you to introduce yourself and how you guys are feeling right now. Yes, ecstatic. It's, it's like good versus evil, finally. You know, we're, we're just, we worked very hard in Pennsylvania, so we're particularly happy to see this. Hi, I'm Bennett Winheim. I'm just relieved. You don't know with this country. We were capable of what we did four years ago, so uh, I'm staying hopeful, staying optimistic. This is a wonderful moment, and uh, I hope it lasts. Enjoy it. I think we're all very overwhelmed. I'm very overwhelmed. It's so exciting, but Trump is gone. Someone lost his job today. We have a new president. It's wonderful. My name is Jessica. And a female vice president. And a female vice president. And a South Asian black woman vice president. It's amazing. Hi, my name is uh, Anna Lauren, and I'm feeling just very emotional and very happy. How long have you been in New York City for? Uh, I'm in Canadian. I've been in New York City for 11 years. Were you able to vote in the election? I could it, and it was killing me. I could it, and but as Canadians, we care so much because we're literally so intertwined with this country. So, yeah, it means a lot to us. And you're out on the street cheering with your friends right now. And is this your little baby as well, husband? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're out here. It's like so emotional and amazing to know that she's gonna grow up in a world that we can have a female vice president in like one of the most powerful countries in the world. My name is Paul, and I am feeling so great, and I'm so relieved there's finally a solution to all of this stuff. But I'm excited. I was actually just about crying when I heard it on the news. I was watching, I was doing work in my office upstairs and, and listening to MSNBC in the background, and then suddenly there was like breaking news, and it was instantaneous, like I almost started crying, seriously. And I'm just like really excited, and I've been out here since then just yelling and screaming and everything, yes! Yeah. What have the last four years been like for you? Horrible. It's been, I, I've actually, I felt as though Trump invaded my brain and that I've not had any rest from that for four years and since the day of the last election, I've been waiting for this day. I've just on so many levels been so taken aback and upset and disgusted, totally disgusted with the way this country is going. And I'm quite concerned about how many people in this country, 45 or 50 percent, think so differently from the other half of us who seem different. And that's really upsetting even now. It was hard because I didn't want Trump to win again because for half of my life he's already um, 
been the president. And I wanted someone new. And when Biden won, I was just in my room. And then my mom just screamed, um, <laughs> Biden just won. And I'm like so confused because it was just so randomly. We're excited, right? Yes, I'm oh, super yes. happy. That was Emma Silicons in her Washington Heights neighborhood. And hear me, Jordan, taking a stroll in my Long Island City community. I'm Jordan Gospore, and you've been listening to Local Switchboard NYC. Our team is host and producer Jordan Gospore, and reporters Sarah Montague, Betsy Lakin, and Heather Chin. Seema Sidikov contributed our subway story. And the readings in our Jane's Walk feature were performed by Margot Avery. You're part of our neighborhood now. So if there's a local story you think is important, let us know at localswitchboard at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.